Havarim, a friend. The word is used to describe the relationship between Jonathan and David. It's also used to describe the phenomenal relationship between God and Abraham. It speaks to a closeness of heart or a beloved friend. But as George ended the last segment, he asked the question you may also be asking, why do we care? With the answer to that question, here's George. So we are looking at the Hebrew word for love and the word chaver, which comes from that root and which means friend. And we're looking now at the plural chavarim. Well, why do we care? Why do we care about this Hebrew? Why do we care about this word? We began to look at this back in chapter 14, quite a while ago. Covenant, the law of Moses. We looked at it in relation to yeshiva, that's the school where rabbis are trained, and the study of the Talmud. The men in yeshiva are studying together in pairs. Each is chaver, beloved friend to the other. And they search the scriptures and the commentaries on the scriptures in the Talmud, and they debate, listen, consider, respond, stretch, reply in great detail. And with more biblical and Talmudic references and connections than you can possibly imagine. One takes one side. His chaver takes the other. It's intense. Sparks fly. It would seem that they try to exhaust the issue and each other. And then often the Rosh, the head rabbi of the yeshiva, will tell them to switch sides. They have to argue the other side's case. What is remarkable about this is that, for the most part, the specifics of each side of a particular issue, and there may be more than two sides, is of long standing, hundreds, if not thousands of years. No winner. A highly regarded rabbi has given each opinion recorded in the Talmud, and they stand there adjacent to each other, each respected for its wisdom. Each is a careful exegesis of scripture, law, and tradition. Their conclusions differ and often diverge or disagree. These conclusions are studied historically and studied for how they apply to today. They are striving to write the law on their hearts. This is done with great vigor and with great care. But what is so notable about it is that for the Jews, aside from a handful of essentials on which there is consensus, the non-essentials are permitted to have more than one point of view. Of course, there are individual Jews and groups who violate this and are as mean-spirited as other religious zealots. But the rabbinic model, which is lived out with great intentionality in yeshiva, is one Christians need to embrace and embody. In yeshiva, the non-essentials are keenly important, so important that no nuance is allowed to be lost. 
The wisdom of each differing view is considered as an indispensable part of the whole, and each is honored and studied. I call this chavering, a wonderful Hebrew word turned into an English verb, and meaning to be able to debate and wrestle with an issue vigorously, but without condescension, harm, or defeat to the other. When we chaver with each other, we let God come in. In fact, we positively invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to inspire our conversation, even our spiritual wrestling, so that we might know the things of God more deeply. This is the spirit of the yeshiva, and it would help deeply in our discussions with Jewish friends over who the Messiah is. But we Christians instead seem to ignore, fight, or discard any view or nuance, even on non-essentials, that does not conform precisely to our own. And we end up in thousands of hardened fortresses, unwilling to let in air or light. We excel at sly sarcasm, bitter accusation, name-calling, and condescension. The hatred, viciousness, and fear-mongering is stunning, and it is sin. The Havarim in yeshiva are not permitted any such personal animus, venom, or disrespect as they debate. Respect of the other's intention is fundamental. But the Havarim in yeshiva believe that it is precisely because they are willing to challenge each other forcefully, to wrestle each issue with vigor, to explore and preserve each nuance, to respect the wisdom and intent of each view that they make room for the Spirit of God to blow through their understandings. The question we Christians need to ask is this. Aside from the core essentials of the faith, is it possible God actually countenances more than one approach to him or his love or his worship or the love of his creatures for one another? Or is there just precisely one concept that is correct in each case for all believers? If the answer is just precisely one, then why did Jesus tell parables, stories that can be applied in so many ways in so many circumstances? Why are all of both Testaments such a narrative adventure with so many twists and turns, with even the law, with a few specific exceptions, laid out in broad terms and able to be set aside for good reason, such as you can work on the Sabbath if it is to rescue your donkey from a ditch. It seems like Jesus would have been better off just giving us the answers, exactly one for each question, a spreadsheet, but of course, Jesus wasn't a Greek philosopher. 
and even they wouldn't do that. He didn't erect a new philosophy or populate a conceptual array with syllogisms, categories, doctrines and subdoctrines, hermeneutical methods, and complex structures of authority. He was a rabbi, a teacher, rooted in the rabbinic way, a tradition that valued vigorous debate and allowed differences to persist that could see truths side by side, adjacent, each a nuance, a piece of a greater whole, rather than one declared right and one declared wrong. Paul did this too, and Peter, and James. Jesus challenged others in his tradition, some quite pointedly. But aside from those who were self-righteous and hypocritical, these challenges of Jesus were typically rabbinic. They would have been expected, normal, even welcomed. It's how the breath of God comes in. So, was Jesus a teacher or a carpenter? Did he walk on water or ride in a boat? Did he heal Jews or Gentiles? Did he stay by himself or mingle with large crowds? Is he a great high priest or a suffering servant? Is he slave or king? Is he man or is he God? Our traditional dialectical binary approach to our faith would suggest if these were doctrines, then they would each be choices, and in each case we would get to pick just one. The last is the one that should rock us back on our heels. Is he a man or is he God? The Christian faith declares that Jesus is both fully man and fully God, not one or the other. And so the rabbinic way, which was also Jesus' way, gives us some light. Beyond the essentials, perhaps we can wrestle with competing concepts and their offspring, but get benefit from all of them and their nuances rather than forcing each other to choose or be cast out. Perhaps we can preserve and protect them and each other, rather than insist that one triumphs and the other is defeated. This is the rabbinic way of hearing and applying Scripture, and it is fundamentally Christian. Thank you, George. Well, can you imagine if our church leadership, when arguing a particular concept of worship, was then required to switch sides and argue the opposing view? That would certainly make for some interesting meetings in our churches. Havarim, an interesting concept and a challenge to us during this discussion of reconciliation on non-essential issues. When we get together next time, we'll further explore ways to make our understanding of faith less binary. I hope you'll join us as we return next time with What We Believe and Why. <music>